This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. During the presidential campaign, Donald Trump often talked about an American soldier in Afghanistan who became the longest-held American POW since Vietnam. Trump said he was, quote, a dirty, rotten traitor, close quote, who should be shot or thrown from a plane. He was talking about Bo Bergdahl, who walked away from his platoons based in eastern Afghanistan. This was in 2009. And he was quickly captured by the Taliban. Eventually, President Obama traded Taliban prisoners to get him back. He was court-martialed, but not sentenced to prison. The whole story tells us a lot about what was wrong with America's longest war. Now the Bo Bergdahl story is told in a new book. It's called American Cipher. And we're joined now by co-author Michael Ames. He's a contributor to Newsweek and Harper's. He's also written for The Atlantic and The Daily Beast. Michael Ames, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, listeners may recall hearing about Bo Bergdahl, not just from Donald Trump, but also from Sarah Koenig on the Serial podcast, which devoted its second season to the story. Our first question, which is the big one, why did Bo Bergdahl walk off his base in Afghanistan? That, is, that was the million-dollar question for, for the five years he was, he was a prisoner and for uh, after he came home for a while. But fortunately, we do have an explanation. He sat willingly. He volunteered to sit for an interview with the Army investigating general on his case. And he spoke to him for two days, and he went into great detail about his reasons. Now, just because we have that reason, and I can even tell it to you, doesn't mean that it might make that much sense. And a lot of people will remain skeptical because it seems so far-fetched. But I think the, the sort of delusional nature of his reasoning is an insight into, into the fact that Bo didn't belong there in the first place. So tell us, what was this reasoning of his? His reasoning was that he wanted to set off an uh, alert for a missing soldier. He wanted to create this uh, hubbub around him. It was a stunt. He wanted to walk through the night from his base about 18 miles to another forward operating base. Now, soldiers who've been there and will say, well, that's insane because it's uh, Taliban territory and there's no way uh, at that altitude and in that terrain he could do it. But where Bo is from in Idaho, and I used to live in his hometown for many years, the terrain is very similar to where he grew up in Idaho. And he spent a lot of time in the backcountry by himself. And the distance from his base to where he was trying to get to was roughly the distance from his parents' house to where he used to work every day. He wanted to go there to make a statement. He wanted to talk to a general, and he wanted to say everything that he thought was going wrong with the war. Some of his critiques of what he was seeing are legitimate, things about the war that just didn't make sense. Other things he was seeing were not legitimate, such as he thought their battalion commander was going to send his entire platoon on a suicide mission, and there's no real, there was no real um, evidence for that. And how did Bo Bergdahl, walking off his base in Afghanistan in 2009, get to be such a huge thing for the American military in Afghanistan, which then spent years searching for him? It's a great question. In the summer and fall of 2009, the Army turned the missing soldier crisis that Bergdahl kicked off into an opportunity. 
Of course, they went looking for their soldier that was missing within the first couple of days. It was a very high priority. It was totally legitimate. But after several days, it started to change and it turned into something else. Intelligence was was known within days and certainly with, within less than two weeks that he had been taken over the border to Pakistan. Even after that was known, soldiers were continually sent on these search missions for him for months afterwards. And those men were lied to about what they were doing. Their commanders were using it as an excuse to run more aggressive raids. And they still haven't really received an honest accounting from the army about it. And then how did Bo Bergdahl get to be a political issue for Trump so many years later in 2016? Well, Trump picked up on it even earlier. Trump was on this right from the moment Bergdahl came home. And that's because Trump was already wired into a political communications campaign that kicked off the day Bergdahl was recovered on the Afghan-Pakistani border, May 31st, 2014, when hours later, Richard Grinnell, who was a Republican operative who Roger Stone once told me was too uh, shady for him to work with, (laughs) went on Fox News and said that Bergdahl was looking for the Taliban. And he just dropped it casually into the conversation. There was no evidence for it. In fact, he was recycling Taliban propaganda, merely in saying it, because it was the Taliban all along who was saying, well, Bergdahl has converted and Bergdahl has now joined us and is is fighting the holy war. There was no evidence for it. There never has been evidence for it. But Grinnell said it that day, and Trump said it a few days later on Fox News. And it became something that he saw was uh, a good trigger for his audiences, and he stuck with it all the way through the election. Of course, as soon as he became the commander-in-chief, he stopped talking about Bo Bergdahl. And, of course, he also focused on the fact that Obama had also made a big deal about Bo Bergdahl and getting getting him back, returning him from the Taliban with a ceremony in the Rose Garden with Bo Bergdahl's parents, and Trump also focused on that. As did, as did many people who were confused and outraged by how the Obama White House handled it that day. And we interviewed uh, Obama White House senior aides, and there's no one who will say that what they did that day was the right thing. They definitely bungled it that day by presenting it as a political victory rather than what it was, which was a lopsided prisoner trade that was the... Um, the best deal available that the White House and State Department thought they could execute. And they used it for their own political gain in a clumsy fashion. But everyone involved in this case has used what Bo Bergdahl did. And that's why he's such an interesting lens onto the way American politics works around the war. Everyone at every stage used Bo for their own institutional advantage. And that goes from the Army, to the Taliban, to the Obama White House, to the Republicans upon his return. Well, who was Bo Bergdahl when he walked off his base in Afghanistan? How come he was in the Army in the first place? He was a guy who didn't belong there in the first place. And that's something, as I said, I lived in his hometown in Haley, Idaho for many years. It's something everyone who knew him knew because he was such a a, a gentle soul, kind of kind-hearted kid. Just to put it in some context, before joining the Army, 
he was considering joining Cirque du Soleil and actually traveled to a Cirque du Soleil audition. He also was, was in talks, his parents, um, who were religious Christians, were in talks with their a pastor who was doing missionary work in Uganda. And Bo was also trying to go to Uganda to help the villagers there and teach them self-defense. So he was really a guy, a young kid, looking for a purpose. But he was incredibly physically fit, incredibly strong and smart, but he had some pretty significant social problems and emotional problems. So two years prior to him enlisting to the army, he washes out of the Coast Guard basic training with um, kind of a panic attack, anxiety breakdown. The Coast Guard issues a form that says he should not be able to serve in the armed services again unless he gets treatment and screening, so on and so forth. The Army simply provided a waiver and took him in anyway. Because in 2008, with a war in Iraq still raging and the Obama administration pivoting to a major troop surge in Afghanistan, the Army lowered its standards. And what that typically meant was maybe now they'll take in guys with felony records, or maybe they'll take in men with lower IQ or with other issues. Bergdahl was a fairly unique case. Here's a guy who looks like a soldier, knows his soldier handbook. He had dreamed of being a soldier for years, and he knew weapons. And he, from a distance, looked like he looked the part. But when he got in there, he, because of his own unique idiosyncrasies and what was later diagnosed as a personality disorder, really didn't fit in at all and couldn't handle what was going on there. It didn't belong there in the first place because of the likelihood that he would do something as crazy as what he ultimately did. Let's talk for a minute about the recovery effort. Some of the most shocking stuff is about what the soldiers went through who were sent to look for him. Oh, yeah. And they were sent for months on these ridiculous quote-unquote search missions that were no longer search missions. They were anti-Taliban missions under the auspices of a different name, which is we're going to look for Bergdahl, even though he was already over in Pakistan. They were sent to fight the war. And these guys did the job um, as if they were actually looking for Bo, so you could understand why they would be so angry at him. Uh, but one of the things that, that motivated some of my earliest sources to go on the record and talk about this is the fact that those people were lied to. Their families didn't know the full fact. And when some soldiers died on those missions, they believed they died looking for Bergdahl. But this is really an important point. The six soldiers who were often cited as killed looking for him, all of them died weeks after the army already had overwhelming intelligence and the rest of the intelligence agencies on the case had already come to the conclusion that Bergdahl was in Pakistan. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible story. Now let's talk about the, the, the trial and the verdict. What do you make of the legal proceedings against him and the very controversial verdict they came up with? Well, the legal proceedings were an incredible waste of resources. There were four times as many Pentagon prosecutors on the government team as there was on the team that prosecuted Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So it was a politically driven case. It was the tale of Fox News wagging the dog of the Pentagon JAG Corps, which is a crazy dynamic 
that shouldn't have been allowed to go that far. But for a variety of factors, everything from, from what John McCain said at the time when he was the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and he said that there would be hearings if there was, not, there was no punishment, and just from the power of the media entertainment system, it led to this incredibly overblown full court-martial that took resources away from the rest of the Army legal system, incredibly. As for the verdict... I don't think it was as controversial for the people who were following the case closely and who were going to all the hearings. He was reduced in rank. He did get a dishonorable discharge, which is equivalent to a felony. He simply was not thrown back in a cage. And I think people who heard what he had been through, who heard how the army used his crisis for its own gain, realized that that that, that was a fair and reasonable verdict. So, in the end, what does the story of Bo Bergdahl tell us about what was wrong with America's longest war? I think Bo Bergdahl came to be a crucible of our country in general. Here's a kid who didn't, who didn't belong in this place, fighting for an army that didn't belong in this place. Here's a kid who's broken, fighting for a war that's broken. And here's a kid whose idealism led him to do something completely insane. And I think we are a country whose idealism led us to waste immense resources and treasure in a war that was completely insane. The book is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan. Michael Ames is the co-author. Michael, thanks so much for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 